Back empowers you to get it together with a single digital wallet. Use Back to aggregate, convert, send, and spend digital assets like crypto, loyalty and rewards points, and gift cards. Get started by downloading the Back app today and treat your digital assets just like cash. And I also want to give a shout out to Kraken. With Kraken, the cryptocurrency exchange, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or even earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit Kraken.com now to learn more. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy-to-use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone. No account registration is required. Download Exodus at exodus.com and you're ready to go. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. And today on the other side of the mic, joining us is the one and only downtown Josh Brown, CEO of Ritzhold Wealth Management, and of course, the brains behind the reform broker. We have a few folks on the show every now and again who need no introduction, but maybe there's someone, some coder somewhere in Argentina or a, you know, grandma in Ireland listening to the show. Um, who may not know who you are, so maybe give a little bit of background about the past 10 years writing the Reform Broker, the the firm you run, and and maybe your uh, favorite food or something. I don't know. Sure, Frank, and thanks for having me. So I guess for your audience, let me describe myself. I'm nobody special, but I happen to have a very popular blog. People like to read what my thoughts are on the markets, on the economy, uh, stocks, bonds, IPOs, ETFs, et cetera, et cetera. So I've, I've built a pretty good following and it continues to grow and I'm just very much myself, which means I'm pretty self-aware about my own limitations. And a lot of what I do is linked to other sources of information because I don't know everything. And I try my best to do a combination of educate, entertain, and provoke uh, thought for the people that, that are interested. And uh, it's been going pretty well. You started the reform broker, right? kind of in the midst of the financial crisis as a way to like explain and educate folks who maybe couldn't get the sort of breakdowns that you could provide about the markets because of the lack of, you know, serious reporting that, you know, everybody was kind of just trying to figure out what was going on. Not nobody was a real expert, but you, you saw a gap there. Well, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. That's a that's a good way to describe it. I tell people I started my blog between Lehman and Madoff, so no, yeah. November of uh, two thousand eight, and there was a lean for me because I'm not a journalist. Mm-hmm. I love financial journalism, and I have a subscription to everything, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not that, and I'm also not like an Ivy League Wall Street guy. You know, Wall, Wall Street people don't speak to the public unless they're being very aggressively stage managed. Um, and coached and and working with publicists yeah. and reading off off a script. So I was somewhat somebody in between. And there are a lot more people like me now, but in 2008, that was pretty novel to have a registered rep slash financial advisor actually say what they think. So I, I think 
a lot of my success comes down to that authenticity. But then also I, I got lucky, right place, right time. And then I guess if you want to give me some credit, I capitalized on it and I built uh, I built something bigger than just the blog as a result. Yeah. And, and in addition to sharing your, your authentic voice, you also run a wealth management firm. I think that covers about 500 or so clients across a billion dollars in assets. So tell so us we're about, about we're about uh we're we're coming up on 40 employees. We work with 1500 families, endowments, retirement systems, etc. and we're about 2 billion in assets under management. Oh nice. So you've doubled over the past like 2 years then. Yeah, we've been growing very fast and uh what's cool is that we have no ad budget. Like all, all of the growth is people that are fans of what we're saying our message, our investing philosophy, our content. Like we only talk to fans. Uh, we're not big on like networking or, <laughs> or anything like that. Yeah. So uh, we've we've built a lot of great blogs and a lot of great podcasts and we do a ton of video and we, uh, we have, a, we're lucky. We have a fan base and a lot of people in that fan base are looking for wealth management help. So that's, mm-hmm. that's how it works. And we're seeing a lot of folks across that space start to dabble with crypto from... Mm. Goldman Sachs to Morgan Stanley looking to offer exposure to their high net worth clients to even folks that play with the little guys like Wealthfront announcing that they were going to completely break out of the traditional cookie cutter index based approach that they had taken for so long to offer crypto and and maybe even some do it yourself um, options for ETFs. So the industry's moving in that direction. You're no newbie to crypto. I think you basically like bought at the bottom in 2017 and, and started sounding the alarms right around the top. But what, what does it look like now? What are your clients asking and, and how are you maybe getting them involved or sort of guiding them? Yeah. I, so here's how I explain it. I would say less than 10% of our clients have asked us anything to do with crypto. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the questions we get are from clients who already own crypto away from us. And our answer is, yes, it works within the context of your financial plan. And that's the extent of it. Meaning we have basically 10 years worth of data on Bitcoin. We understand its volatility profile. We also understand that that might not be the same in the future. It could be more or less volatile. But just like as a benchmarking exercise, we'll explain to a client the amount that you own relative to all of the other assets, liabilities, cash flows, et cetera, relative to your risk tolerance. Like, yes, you own a reasonable amount of of cryptocurrency. It's not going to wreck your plan if it goes to zero. It's probably not going to change your life if it goes to 100,000, you know, per Bitcoin or whatever. But I think we're just giving people the sense that. Yes, they can speculate in things like crypto or uh, they can be involved in that world and it's not going to cost them anything. We are not currently recommending to clients buy crypto. And I think right now you're seeing a lot of me tooism yeah. going on, which is fine. I, I don't, I'm not going to mock anybody, but I've been through this already. When you look at the aftermath of the great financial crisis, US stocks uh, from 2000 to 2009, Frank, had what's referred to as the lost decade. They effectively delivered zero return with two 50% crashes in the middle. So all that volatility and no return. Meanwhile, if you if you looked back and you said, well, if that didn't work, what did work? Commodities were outstanding in the 2000s decade. 
This is coming on the heels of China uh, joining the World Trade Organization and uh, just these massive moves higher in iron ore, uh, in steel demand, in oil going, you know, over $200 a barrel. So what ended up happening in my industry is that everybody started to build these 60-40 portfolios, but then chop out enough room to include a 10% commodity sleeve. Yeah. Like that became, because everybody invests in the rearview mirror. So now what you're going to see is people take the returns of Bitcoin, backward looking, and bake them into portfolio pitches that make the past returns look really good, which is how people sell future returns to investors. So you're seeing Morgan Stanley, you're seeing Goldman, and they're going to launch hedge funds, and they're going to, it's going to be a whole thing. And most of it's going to be based on the excitement of past returns. And maybe it works, but historically, I don't have to tell you what happened with commodity prices over over the next 10 years after what I just described. They were absolutely atrocious, declined by, I don't know, 50, 60%. So it's like, we'll see what happens, but I'm open-minded and I do believe that crypto will be important. I'm just not sure it's going to be more important than stocks for a typical retiree. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think it's funny, you know, when you look at the market, um, look at some of the recent headlines about 60-40. I mean, there's been a Cambrian explosion about how we need to rethink it. I mean, I'm looking at some right now and it's like, why a 60-40 portfolio is no longer good enough? Time to rethink the classic 60-40 portfolio. I mean, there's like dozens of articles just in the past. But you could week. find examples of that from, from 09. Exactly. You know, the 60-40 portfolio. So the, the S&P 500 was cut in half between October 07 and March 09. So down 57%, worse than in half. The 60-40 portfolio, I think you still lost 34% peak to trough. So there were a whole Cambrian explosion of articles about how the 60-40 portfolio is broken in 2009, 2010, 2011. And of course, mm -hmm. it went on to have the best 10-year period in its history, but that's a story for another day. Um, so there will always be that kind of hindsight no, this is the, the the wrong thing. That's the right thing. I think the idea that a portfolio should be balanced between risk assets and return of principal assets, and that on a regular basis doing a rebalance to make sure that you have the right amount of each, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario where that doesn't quote unquote work. Is it the best possible, most optimized uh, return in the future? Who knows? I'll tell you in 10 years. Yeah, uh, John Hollier, Hollier, he's a principal and global head of fixed income at Vanguard, said a few days ago to CNBC that there is no real magic number, right, when it comes to this the split between bonds and stocks. But what's the thinking um, among most of the folks you're talking to, especially in this like really low yield environment and really highly inflated market for stocks. If you look at these valuations, if you look at what these IPOs are going at, and then obviously the backdrop of COVID in the rearview mirror, hopefully, it's gotten a lot of people rethinking how we should be allocating. So I fail to understand then, if your concern is overvalued stocks, I fail to understand how the right answer to that is to buy things that have no intrinsic value. <laughs> <laughs> that have just that have just gone up twenty thousand percent. Like it's it's very hard for me to understand that logic. Um, well, well, in terms of like crypto, I think it's the same exact thing driving the prices in the they're they're both risk on assets, right? So the reason why Dogecoin is up, you know, however much ten thousand plus percent, 
is the same reason why everybody's diving into the so-called meme stocks. It's the same reason why I think you see Square and Coinbase all trading very richly. I mean, I think Square is like larger than every single big bank, right? And I don't have an opinion on that specific stock, but I think they're all in the same camp right now, except Bitcoin, I think a lot of people view as this inflation hedge. And that's where it's maybe in its own ambiguous state, not necessarily risk on, not necessarily risk off. Well, I guess we'll find out. There's no there's no evidence of that other than people saying it. So I guess we'll, we'll see. Maybe it'll turn out to be an inflation hedge. Maybe it'll be, turn out to be a better inflation hedge than gold. We'll find out. And I've read and heard very intelligent arguments on both sides put forth by people who I believe to be smarter than me and people who have done spent more time in their lives researching the subject. So I don't really have that hard and fast an opinion on in either direction, but I know a couple of things to be true. And one of those things is that gold is actually a shitty inflation hedge anyway. Yeah. Another thing is that stocks are a great inflation hedge. And another thing, even on top of that, is that real estate is even better, specifically real estate investment trusts, commercial real estate. So you think about companies and landlords both having this thing in common where they are able to raise prices in response to inflationary pressure in the real economy, we have a very long track record of that being true. I have evidence that this is true. I have no such evidence that this is true. In fact, most of Bitcoin's rally took place during a time of disinflation as bond yields were falling. So somebody could say it. It doesn't mean it's real. Now, if the idea is people will buy cryptocurrencies strictly to get their money out of cash because they're panicked about the dollar's falling purchasing power, okay, I, I would believe that. But which cryptocurrencies and for how long? Yeah. Because if everyone is already betting that way, then is anyone left to come in and, and bet that way? So I try not to say things to investors and clients that I can't back up, right? Yeah. So I'm happy to entertain here are the arguments for, here are the arguments against. Um, here's why even I may be leaning more toward one than the other, but I'm not going to bullshit people and tell them that there's evidence of something that there isn't. There is no evidence yet, yet, um, that cryptocurrency will be a good inflation hedge. I hope it is. I own some. <laughs> yeah. I own dollars too. So it would be nice if it worked out that way, but I can't, I can't say definitively that I know it will. Yeah. What do you think of the housing market right now? Um, put it in the same category as all the other things that you just mentioned. Look, we have, we have, um, we have too many dollars chasing too few things of value to the point where we have to invent new things and pretend they have value in order to find a home for all of these dollars. So <laughs> single family homes all over the country fit that, that paradigm very nicely. Perfect time to launch a token for the reform. Anything. Order. Launch anything. What's the difference? Here, I'll sell you this cup of coffee. It's worth $80. Why is it worth $80? Because I created a token based on it. Oh, okay. Here's $80. Now I'm going to go tweet it that I well, bought it. I think the NFT space and the reason why we're seeing you know ridiculous, you know, it's not ridiculous to some folks, but weird images and pixels sell for millions of dollars is because art just in and of itself like is not something that can be assessed for value. And there's also a lot of rich crypto millionaires and billionaires that gotten 
that have gotten minted over the past few months. And honestly, like I'm sure a lot of them have no idea how to spend their money aside from buying weird images on the internet. I would take it a step further, Frank. They don't respect money. <laughs> they don't need, they don't yeah. need to. Their bills are paid forever. They did something that 99% of all the authority figures in our society told them is bad, is stupid, and it worked so astronomically well. How could you go through that experience where you, you flout all common sense, all conventional wisdom, right? Every, all your teachers, your parents, all the authority figures in your life, your priest, your rabbi, none of them, none of them would advocate what you just did in Bitcoin putting huge sums of money and then it worked. Yeah. How could you ever listen to anyone again? So now this next thing where people are bidding a bidding war over a piece of code, it doesn't surprise me at all. Why would it? How could anything surprise you if within the last year we just watched the price of oil go to a negative number? Why would the price of any other asset surprise you at this point? I'm telling you literally anything can happen. I'm telling you that a barrel of oil was worth a negative number yeah. for more than an hour this past year. So NFTs are shocking? Yeah, $69 million for like just a bunch of pixels, right? Uh, Listen, I have two things on that. First of all, the art is, is not good, like objectively. I love art. It's not good. Um, it's, like, it's like meme quality uh, art, but fine. Good for him. Good for him, he, for sure. He had this amazing idea of what he wanted to do. He put in the work, and then there was this moment where the iron was hot, and he struck. And yeah. I couldn't be happier for that guy. Well, you you were just describing the past year and a half and how wild it's been. Negative oil. I mean, Dogecoin and Tesla minting millionaires out of mom-and-pop retail investors. Universal and basic income started under a Republican president. We've never seen anything like this before. Well, maybe if we go back to the dot-com era, but still has its own uniqueness. And, and Th this is on a scale that dwarfs that. Yeah, I agree. So it's like it raises the question. You talked about authority and whether or not folks should be listening to their – it turns everything that the authorities have told us on, on their head. So it raises the question – why should we be listening to our financial advisors anymore? Does the role of Josh Brown and Red Holtz Wealth Management become less relevant or does the relevancy become questioned more? I think it's the opposite. What we've seen, what we've seen in the last year, year and a half since we've been in this period is that financial advice has never become more sought after, mm. uh, has never been more sought after than it is now. Betterment just crossed $29 billion in assets. My firm raised almost half a billion dollars in the last 13 months. Like everyone is looking for answers and now they have a lot of money, but they really don't know what the right thing is to do with it. And part of that is you can't earn anything in a bank account. You can't earn anything in the bond market. That used to be a very stable, reliable source of retirement income. It's gone. It doesn't exist. We may not get it back for years. If you listen to the Fed, they're not even thinking about bringing it back. So now you're forced to take more equity risk, not because you mm. want to, but because it's become one of the only games in town. Well, if you're going to be taking more risk, you better be taking the right risk, not just the right amount of risk, but the right type of risk. 
So there are mm-hmm. all kinds of questions people have. People who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, they they don't want to fuck it up. It yeah. took them their whole lives to accumulate what they've built. They want to have somebody that they can work with to make sure that that money will accomplish all of the things they say are important to them. And that's what a financial advisor does. A financial advisor is not an authority figure. It's the client's money. The financial Mm -hmm. advisor is not a swashbuckling hedge fund manager. It's not a regulatory authority. A financial advisory firm is a firm that's employed with people who understand both investor psychology and markets and can marry those two things to produce an outcome uh, for an investor. So if you look at flows, the RIA channel, registered independent advisory channel, has never seen more money come in and has never been more alive than it is right now. And all of the uncertainty that's driving so much of what you and I are talking about, if you tell me it's going away tomorrow, okay, but I doubt it. And if anything, things seem to be getting more uncertain, not less. So uh, we are, as an industry, we don't have enough advisors to go around, is is what the statistics suggest. Interesting. How much growth do you think your firm can see over the next few years as a result of this surge in demand? Well, so we don't actually want to serve everyone. We want to serve people that are a good fit for us because I'm not, you know, I'm not the size and scale of Fidelity or Schwab. And uh, what we're really trying to do is take our fan base and help the people who understand our message and are aligned with our philosophy. So there are a lot of people that come to us that want, you know, to have us manage a part of their portfolio or beat the market for them or pick stocks with them. We, we turn down at as many people, if not more, than we say yes to. So it's not really the sort of business where we're like pursuing scale at all costs. We have no private equity money. You know, we, we, we're not backed by anybody. It's all our own business. And we're very, very... I think, deliberate about making sure the growth rate is manageable. Because keep in mind, every hundred households I bring on, give or take, I'm going to need another advisor. Yeah. How many high quality advisors can I really find out there who can do everything that we expect our client facing advisors to do? It's not an unlimited number. It's a limited pool of talent. So I have to be very careful about that teacher student ratio and not bring on more clients than I can actually keep happy. The worst possible outcome for a business like mine is we just start saying yes to everyone, telling people we'll do whatever they tell us they want us to do, uh, let the quality of our client-facing people slip or get diluted with too many people to speak to, and then my churn rate starts ticking up. And then all of a sudden, I start having people leave, the you know unsatisfied clients leaving. That's like the worst possible scenario to me. So... We're going to be bigger, obviously, but we're not in a rush and there's no target. Backed is the digital wallet of the future, empowering you to manage all of your digital assets from a single place. Backed puts the power in your hands to get your crypto, loyalty and rewards points and gift cards together to choose how you want to use them. Treat your digital assets just like cash and convert, send or spend them using Backed. Get started today and get it together with Back. Available for download now in the App Store and Google Play Store.
And I also want to take a moment to thank Kraken, the cryptocurrency exchange. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Whether it's your first trade or your 100th, Kraken has the tools to help you hit your financial goals in crypto. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit Kraken.com now to learn more. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Exodus. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy-to-use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone, and interactive charts let you view the price history of a specific asset and your portfolio's performance over time. Sync your wallet across multiple devices to access your funds from anywhere. And maybe the best part, Exodus is integrated with Trezor Hardware Wallet, making advanced security easy for everyone. Download Exodus at exodus.com today. I want to tease out something you said that I think is important and will serve as probably one of the bigger impediments for the wealth management channel to really break into crypto. And that's just the lack of sort of in-depth analysis that they can sort of use to really be honest and forthcoming about whether they can recommend this as any sort of percentage in their portfolio. There's an information barrier here that will be overcome or potentially not. That's basically what you're saying. I think that as an advisor, you have the right to recommend a client have exposure to any commodity, digital commodities are just one. You have the right, yeah. like by law, you can make that recommendation. However, you have to show a process, an investment committee meeting. There have to be notes because when that thing blows up and what we know about commodities and Bitcoin, you know, is, is included in this, there are booms and busts. It's perfectly fine. It's normal. There's no one way asset. So we know that this will blow up. We know that there will be lawsuits. We know that at some point the regulator is going to try a civil case to establish like some case law. Someone's going to get fucked. Yeah. Someone's going to have the arrows in their back. Um, that, that's what happens to pioneers. This is just this is the normal course of action. Um, there were people who were scared to use ETFs in our industry 15 years ago for exactly the things that I'm describing to you. There was too much of an unknown. There wasn't enough of a history and very few people want to be the test case for something, right? How do you think that changes? It changes at a glacial pace. It changes slowly. I don't think it should be a revolution. So people are like, oh, well, advisors, they're so slow to adopt. But you pay my fucking lawsuit. Let's tell you, you set up a legal fund. Right? You own Bitcoin at $300 a coin. You have enough money by now. You set up a legal fund for all the financial advisors that you're trying to goad into pushing their clients into an asset that's got less than 10 years trading history. You, you pay the, the bills because that's what holds back innovation. And you could say it shouldn't be that way. I'm sorry, but it is that way because we still live in a country of laws and lawyers and people who earn their living pointing their finger at other people. So that is where the hesitancy comes from. It's not insurmountable. And maybe 
when you see guys like Scaramucci and Bitwise and uh, and 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 Grayscale, when you see some of these early adopters trying to make that crossover happen, maybe that's the money that they'll end up making that risk premium for being willing to act before everyone else was. But it doesn't even feel that early at this point. Like Fidelity um, is is heavily involved in crypto. Morgan Stanley, Goldman, like all of these firms, they want to have an on-ramp for their clients for this commodity, right? Or for this, whatever we want to call it. So it's not that early, but we're still not at the point where the average financial advisor in America can confidently say to a client, I'm going to buy you $500,000 worth of Bitcoin in your $10 million portfolio. We're just, we aren't there. But doesn't that make it kind of early if there's this massive, I don't know exactly how large the sort of, um, I know that the digital sort of fintech wealth management segment is like, you know, sub a trillion, but there's obviously billions and billions of dollars of, of, you know, client assets out there in the, in the wealth management financial advice space that is not going towards any sort well, of the stock market is uh the stock market is like U S stock market's like 38 trillion bond markets, like a hundred trillion. Yeah. Mean, you, obviously there's a long way to go between where we are and yeah. where we might end up, which is a reason to be bullish. Uh, frankly, at least on, on Bitcoin, I think. So I'm not, I'm not a seller. I'm holding. Yeah. What do you think of the charts right now? What do you think of that price? Like, do you think that that's like what it's ba- It's just based on whatever people are willing to buy and sell it at today. I don't feel that. I don't feel that there's any analysis I can do uh, that should give anybody any comfort level in in <laughs> in my my outlook. Or please don't listen to me on crypto. There's a lot of things. That, listen, I'm an expert in a couple of things. I have a very narrow range. I could tell you about the history of, of Wall Street and stock market. I know Chinese food, but like tread very carefully when you're listening to me on, on things. Uh, New York Knicks, you know, don't, don't go by my Bitcoin takes. Let's, uh, let's switch to the markets for a second. Um, one thing that I've been asking a lot of folks from the traditional world who have come on the show, we had an executive from Bridgewater on a few weeks ago, um, and we talked about risks, you know, that are creeping up because, as you know, uh, the biggest risk is always the one that you don't see until you're in hindsight, unless you're Michael Berry or, or someone like that, right? So when you think about the risks that are creeping into the market right now, what do you think is the most concerning? The most concerning is that what we've just witnessed completely flipped the entire concept of risk on its head. Because we've just had the biggest risk in 100 years. We had Spanish flu 2.0 in the modern era, like traveling three times faster than the 1918 version, right? Like the biggest risk you could think of, millions of people suddenly dropping dead from a global pandemic. It turned out to be one of the biggest opportunities. And you didn't have to wait three years or eight years like the Great Depression to figure that out. Literally. The stock market fell for 16 days and stopped. Think about that. So what even is risk anymore? What if I tell you the next thing is a a nuclear bomb going off somewhere? Dow Jones might go up 50%. (laughs) What does that mean? Do we throw caution to the wind now? Or that's what people are doing. Let me ask you this question about human nature. 
The cat is now out of the bag. The treasury just sent $5 trillion to people. Yeah. Like electronically right into their bank accounts. Do you think we're going to be able to go through another recession or economic incident and have a stock market crash? And then all of the authorities just pretend that they don't remember that they just did this and it worked. Is that now how we just deal with our jobs numbers? Like think about like follow this to its logical conclusion. Four years from now, they start noticing jobless. uh, um, They start noticing unemployment rates start ticking up. Okay. So they don't have to drop a $5 trillion bomb on us. But what if they just say, you know what? Let's spritz $50 billion into, into some bank accounts. Show me all the bank accounts with balances of under $3,000. Let's double them. Like what if all of a sudden that becomes the new tool that gets used less and less and less judiciously and more and more and more frequently? So we have, we're in the early innings of possibly universal basic income. And if they're going to start doing that rather than just screwing with interest rates every time they want to juice the, the economy, think, of, think about – so what does risk even mean – in that context, what if we're rooting for the next big, bad, horrible event because of how much fucking money they're going to throw at us? What if that becomes the new mentality? I really feel that we're in a, a radical uh, period of time where a lot of stuff is going to change and break and never go back to the way it was before. I mean, what the Fed went through during this crisis is, is one of the other unprecedented things that we can sort of unpack. And he's not going to stop. They're not going to stop. Treasury too, though. Treasury is in the executive branch. It's under the president. They were the ones making the direct payments. The Fed just financed it. Yeah. But you you see what I'm saying? So now we used to talk about this separation of powers and like winking each other. Now there is none. We're not even pretending anymore. This is the Fed and Treasury getting back together, which they did during the 08 financial crisis. And thank God they did. But now they, they're working in an even more coordinated, hand-in-glove fashion. And this is all at the direction of whoever the president is at the time, right? So things are different now. We have a very, very different crisis response mechanism. And we've just seen how incredibly quickly and effectively it works. You're going to tell me we're going to keep that in the closet the next time there's a crisis? I doubt it. So this juiced up on steroids plunge protection team is going to be there for when the next crisis hits as they continue to just keep responding in this aggressive type of manner. What are the long-term ramifications that freak you out? Unfortunately, I think uh, it just means bigger booms and bigger busts. And right now we're in the middle of a quote, bigger boom. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, I think, unfortunately, we're going to have to grow accustomed to more volatility not less in our economic system. We'll be able to respond faster. We'll be able to respond with more effective measures like direct stimulus to people. Now we know that works, but it doesn't mean that we're not going to have these these panics and these really big boom bust cycles. So I just think everything gets magnified. Everything that we've seen in the past gets amplified. And I I do think I do think that we'll have to rethink the role of different assets in a portfolio. So I don't want to tell you that the same portfolio that worked in the 60s, 70s, 80s is appropriate for the 2020s, 2030. But I, I can't tell you that. So I do think that people have to think about 
well, maybe I just permanently have to accept more volatility. Hmm. That's the opposite of what Wall Street sells, by the way. What Wall Street sells investors is, I'm going to get you the same return as a stock market, but with half the volatility. Yeah. Of, course they, of course they can't. It's always yeah. bullshit for one reason or another. But I think a financial advisor who's reasonable right now is saying to clients, you're going to get very little from the bond portion of your portfolio other than stability, right? Yeah. And most of the income we have to generate is going to come from a combination of dividend paying stocks and periodic stock sales where we're sending you back chunks of the principal because I really just can't get you uh, a, a yield of 4% right now, even though that's what you want to pull out each year. So if you're a, if you're a good financial advisor, you find a way to construct the portfolio and make sure that that message is hitting home, that part of this is on you now. You're going to have to live in this new reality. So I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle. And we're seeing that that volatility, that new reality epitomized even in specific names. We saw a boom and bust and boom again cycle happen in, in GameStop as an example. What does this mean for the stock market in terms of the addition of more volatility, the, the presence of more retail, and the gamification of the market, I think, has never, it's never really has looked just so much like a casino. I don't know how else to put it, right? Um, what does that mean for the market is, and capital formation? Is I it, think a lot of the gambling will wring itself out of the system just because people will walk away with no money left. Like the people who are taking the biggest, uh, most inadvisable risks eventually will wipe themselves out. So that, and they'll go back to FanDuel and um, yeah. DraftKings. Like, I, I I don't think that that's a long-term player in the market. How could it be? How could it be, right? The same way that if you, the same way if you owned the casino and you were watching on the closed circuit and you were observing all the different tables in the blackjack room and you saw one person just being so outrageous with the way they were betting you might be licking your lips like eventually all this money will end up with me. Okay. But one thing you knew for sure was that in the end, that's not a long-term customer. Like that person doesn't come back after tonight. This is it. So I, I think that a lot of the true excess gambling will ring itself out. I also think a lot of the people right now that the pros are mocking, the people who yeah. are like trading based on memes, this and that, they're going to get smarter. Maybe it'll be because they've lost some money and they've made some money and they'll start to see like, you know, everything I made, I gave it up so fast. I got to change the way I'm doing this. I think you, you have to allow room for people to grow up. When my generation started trading in the late 1990s, we were idiots too. We just didn't have fucking TikTok to embarrass ourselves with. <laughs> but it's not like we, we showed up like Rhodes Scholars. We were doing the same stupid shit. Yeah, just, the bulletin boards and such. Correct. We just didn't have dance moves to go yeah. along with it. We didn't have memes. Like we were on Yahoo Finance and raging bull message boards, but we didn't have Twitter. But it's not like my generation starting to trade dot com stocks um, were Warren Buffett. It's, it's just not, it's not true. So I think young people who are starting to invest in the last year, they need some room to mature and they will. And some of them will become serious investors. And some of them will get wiped out from gambling. And that's how it's always been. It sounds like what you're describing is what the crypto market kind of looks like and has looked like. We saw the big 2018 boom and then bust 
A lot of people got washed out. You saw it in the like Wikipedia page visits of Bitcoin. You saw it in the exchange website traffic. It all, and then all the people disappeared, right? You know, the Twitter accounts disappeared. Is that what's going to happen well, with stock? Well, you had a you had a, a crime wave in 2017. Uh, the I, the ICOs were a crime wave. True. Like, like, like yeah. literally all scams. Yeah. But then what I keep hearing 99% now. 99% bullshit. Yeah. But what I keep hearing now is that it's, oh, actually it's a good thing that that happened because so much expertise came from working all these projects. All right. What do I know? Um, <laughs> but I, I don't think the crime wave is over. I still see rappers creating coins and all kinds of shit. Like, yeah, I, I, I don't think that enough of a lesson was actually learned in 17 and 18 about believing people and just taking like read an article on CoinDesk and like here's $10,000. I read all these articles about Bitcoin cuz I'm a I'm a student of it. I'm trying to learn just like you are, just like everyone should be. And they're frequently citing sources for data or color on what's going on. And then you like look up who these sources are. It's like a guy started a website Monday morning, Tuesday night, he's an authority on Cardano. What the fuck is going on? Because that's how that's how young this stuff is, and that's how naive the audience is. And there's nothing wrong with it because if you go back to prior waves of innovation in anything you can think of, let's take automobiles. There were hundreds of American automobile companies all launched within a five or ten year period, and we ended up with three. Fifty years later, right? We ended up with Chevy, um, Chrysler. Uh, excuse me, GM, Chrysler, Ford. Now there are two because Chrysler's owned by a foreign company. So it's okay for there to be this new technological wave and for most of the companies not to make it. Like it's not doom for crypto assets as an asset class just because most of these coins end up vanishing. It's not the worst thing. And in fact, it looks like a pattern that we've seen repeated throughout history. So that's how I'm, I'm thinking about it at least. It would make my job a lot easier just having to cover a few coins. So I definitely wouldn't be opposed to that. So you're way deeper in this than I am, but you know, all this shit is made up except for like maybe 5% is real, right? Like you, you understand conceptually that it's not likely that we're going to have an abundance of scarce assets. (laughs) Well, yeah, well, that's a, it's, you know, it's a debate even with like, you know, among layer one projects like the Ethereum wannabes, there's hundreds of them, but like there really can only be so many platforms on which the future of could you could HTTP have competed with 90 different protocols? Uh, yeah, maybe it, it could have, it didn't have to, it was very fortunate. So everybody just agreed. We're going to build on this base base layer. I don't feel that it's likely that developers are going to develop products for 20 different base layers. So to your point, that part of it seems like it's obvious. So then the second question is, okay, all of these DeFi tokens being built on top of Ethereum, how many of those are even necessary? How many of these are just projects because there's infinite funding out there? But if we were in a scarce resource environment, people wouldn't be dicking around with this stuff because nobody really needs it. So I don't read white papers. I read blog posts because I'm a simpleton. But a lot of the times I'll finish reading something and I'll say, this just seems like a solution in search of a problem. Who, who is asking for this? And mm-hmm. the answer is usually nobody. It's a pod of three developers 
who got somebody to write them a check. And they're working on things that nobody really needs. Now, I continue to hear this argument. Well, with so much money being thrown at all this stuff, we don't know what it's going to turn into. Yeah, that's probably true. But I can't get past the all this money being thrown at this stuff part because most of it will be incinerated. How could that not be the case? How can the majority of this stuff end up being worth something? It can't. So I know what I don't know. So you are not going to see me making investments for myself, even with my most risky risk capital into all these various Web3 projects, because I, I'm i not going to be the person that figures out the worthwhile ones. For, it's not going to be me. I accept that. That's the reason why there are so many venture capital firms that are basically investing in competitors. We see this in the crypto market all the time. I mean, there's one firm in particular that I won't mention that's basically in every single scaling solution project. And that's because they have all this money that they have to allocate. They have to deploy this capital. Um, and that's- I have read the argument though that true scaling is going to be a combination of multiple scaling solutions working in parallel with each other. It's not going to be, here's how we scale Ethereum. It's going to be, yeah. here is yeah. this whole zoological, here's 50 different scaling processes and the one that's got the most capacity now is the one that'll be used by this app. But I, I get your point. Like people are we're we're still throwing spaghetti at the wall phase uh with a lot yeah. of this stuff. And it speaks to your point that you made earlier about just having a lot more people with a lot more risk capital. And that's translating not only into this dynamic we're seeing in the crypto market, but it's playing into the per you know the Perfusion of SPACs that we've seen and, yeah. and other asset valuations. SPAC. It, well, if you just what a word. If if you just put a hundred thousand dollars into crypto and it's worth thirty million dollars today, right? And you did that in like four years. Yeah. Would you give a shit about what you're doing with your money? Like, it's almost like not real anymore. It's we have a generation of people that don't even hold money in their hands. Every transaction is on their phone or on a stored credit card somewhere, right? It's like it's like almost meaningless. Like they've never held a stack of bills that they took out of the bank for some reason, right? Yeah. So I, I think there's some – it's the same as like when you go shopping with a credit card versus when you go shopping with cash. The amount of things you'll – Changes you'll, the psychology. Adding things on at the register just because you're swiping a card, right? Like there's some element to that. Yeah. Because it is, in, in, in many respects, when you make that much money that quickly, it becomes free money. I think it's fair to say that there is a component of that at work across the stock market, crypto market. It's everywhere. NFTs. Yeah. It's infected everything. Okay. I want to be respectful of your time. I, I promise that it'd go like 40 minutes, but you just have a lot to say. I do. You're I'm very verbose. Voice. You're, you're, you're ver verbose. I'm a, I'm a pushy play. Jew from Long Island. I can't shut yes. up. I'm sorry. I miss him. I miss Long Island. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't been since like COVID. Um, closing thought. Um, we've had a lot of hot takes throughout the show, but what do you think you're most contrarian about right now? Oh, aside from crypto, let's focus on the traditional market. Um, a class malls. I've been, I've been accumulating Simon property group on the public markets. Why? Why? Why do you think because, people are going to start going to malls because again? Because most of the people who fled the cities to move to the suburbs are not going back. And th all those A malls are in the wealthiest 
uh, suburbs. And many of the people who go to those malls are people who aren't working because their spouse is working. Um, so the, the A-class malls in all 20 major metropolitan regions in America are absolutely jam-packed as people look to have a reason to leave the home. And now that you've got this boom in the suburbs and it looks to continue for quite a while, I feel as though the malls are going to take the place of the downtown areas in the city. They're going to be entertainment destinations. So the good news is that the handful of publicly traded mall stocks that actually have A-class malls in their portfolios are still you know, 50 60% lower than their all-time record highs, Simon included. Uh, in the meanwhile, they're reporting stuff like over 90% of their tenants paying on time. And many of the, the bankrupt retailers, what these malls have been able to do is actually form side businesses to buy these uh, tenants and operate them. So in the case of Simon, they've got this thing called Spark Acquisition Group. They're running Brooks Brothers. They're running wow. Forever 21. They're running. So now they're not only do they own the real estate, but now they actually have the ability to uh, to take over tenants and and uh, earn profits that way as well. So I think these stocks have been misunderstood for a long time, even prior to the pandemic. And I think the pandemic is now a tailwind as the suburbanization boom continues. You know what they should do is for all of these people who now don't have offices and are cooped up with their spouse and family and need just somewhere to go work, they should they should sort of do like, you know, as JC Penney's and Sears go out of business, throw in some co-working spaces in there too. You know what? They are playing coy with the media on that topic, but uh, there have been reports about Amazon talking with Simon, for example, about logistics yeah. space, warehouse space, shipping. During the pandemic, we saw this huge buildup in um, uh, cars in the parking lots because the car dealerships ha- had no place to put all these cars, so started parking them at the mall. These companies historically have been responsive to changes in consumer tastes and changes in 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 the economy, the environment. Um, so I think they continue to uh, uh, become entertainment destinations and dining destinations uh, for people. And I think that that real estate still has a lot of value. And owning the new town square for this suburban boom that we're undergoing is probably a pretty profitable situation. So that's a pretty contrarian take. Most people think every mall in the country is just going to spontaneously close and become <laughs> like a, a dark crypt uh, with with uh, abandoned retailers and dust on all the t- – it's just not the reality when you go to these – You went to the Ledgewood Mall where I grew up in New Jersey. You would you, you definitely see the crypt that, that it's become. Well, but- we, have, we have a few of those too where I live, but then the A malls are the beneficiaries yeah. of that. Yeah, and we shall see. Maybe next time we catch up, we'll we'll do this at a mall. Sounds good <laughs> to me, Frank. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much.